may well-regulated militia be necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am so glad you're with us on the program today. Got to tell you, I'm not really thrilled about the uh, topic because we're once again going to be discussing ghost guns. Yes, the inanity of... Uh, going after home-built firearms. This is the latest idea from the uh, anti-gun activists. You know, if we just do this one thing, then everything's going to be okay. So all we have to do now is to go after home-built, unserialized firearms. And as long as we do that, as long as we ban so-called ghost guns, then we'll be able to get a handle on the rising violent crime rate. So goes the narrative put forth by the White House, Joe Biden himself, and of course, uh, Democrats around the country. Uh, I will say I was pleasantly surprised to see in the pages of the Philadelphia Inquirer today an op-ed by Eric Pratt of Gun Owners for America talking about what the left gets wrong about ghost guns. And this is very timely because Philadelphia DA Larry Krasner is among those who gets a lot of things wrong when it comes to quote-unquote ghost guns. So I thought we would go through uh, a little bit of uh, Eric Pratt's piece today, uh, as well as talk about what Larry Krasner is saying about uh, home-built firearms. The first bit of myth-busting that uh, Eric Pratt engages in in the pages of the Philadelphia Inquirer is talking about the the prevalence of uh, quote-unquote ghost guns and their use in crime. He says, according to the Department of Justice, privately made firearms were found at 692 homicide or attempted homicide scenes over a six-year period. That means at worst, he says, out of more than 16,000 yearly murders, homemade guns are used in around 115 homicides per year. That's far fewer murders than many common items which are easily found around one's home, like knives, 1,476 homicides, hammers or blunt objects, 397 homicides, or fists and feet, 600 homicides. So why, he asks, isn't the Biden administration trying to regulate those objects? Well, the answer, he says, is that this president is not as interested in protecting public safety as much as he wants to implement a radical gun control regime. The new ATF rule, writes Pratt, could incarcerate gun owners for committing nonviolent, highly technical violations of complex and unconstitutional laws while doing nothing about the rising number of crimes committed by real criminals. This is spot on, by the way. You know, White House Press Secretary Jin Psaki said yesterday, well, we need new laws in order to fight violent crime. No. New laws create new crimes. New laws create new criminals. If you're making it now illegal to build your own firearm at home through a, uh, you know, a, a, a kit that you buy online, uh, you're going to turn a lot of legal law-abiding gun owners into paperwork criminals. Now, they're not violent criminals. They have no violent intent whatsoever. But again, if they're caught with a ghost gun that should have been serialized according to the federal government, and it hasn't been, that could come with years in federal prison. Now, who benefits from that beyond, of course, the anti-gun activists who don't want us to exercise our Second Amendment rights, who want to make it so legally dangerous to exercise your right to keep and bear arms that many of us will simply decide, you know what, it's not worth the risk. Pratt goes on to say that the anti-gun left may try to demonize these firearms by referring to them as, quote, ghost guns. But the fact remains that hundreds of thousands of honest gun owners today are making their own legal guns, and virtually none of them will be used in any crime. 
The White House claims that serializing firearms is necessary to stop criminals, but in reality, he writes, there's no evidence that registering firearms or stamping them with serial numbers prevents crime. Virtually every gun used in a crime already has a serial number. You know, again, perfect case of point. Let's go back to California, where there are more than 100 gun control laws on the books. More than 100. And yet, gang members in Sacramento, California, apparently have no trouble whatsoever getting a hold of firearms and using them to commit acts of violence on city streets. Guns that were stolen, guns that were purchased in straw buys, guns that, yeah, may have been built by criminals themselves. The commonality is that no matter how a criminal acquires a firearm, they generally don't care whether or not they're breaking the law to do so, right? So passing a law that, again, criminals are going to ignore, that will ensnare otherwise law-abiding Americans, is not a way to reduce crime. It's, a, it's actually, in a weird way, it's a, it's, going to, it's a way to increase crime. Again, crimes dreamt up and imagined by the gun control lobby itself, not the crimes that we think of that need to be combated, like you know armed robbery, carjacking, murder, rape, things of that nature. So why has Biden decided to go down this road? Well, according to Eric Pratt, he says it's about control. Serialization, he writes, is not designed to stop criminals. It's designed to register the law abiding, which history shows is the first step towards confiscation. And if you don't think confiscation could ever occur in this country, just recall Beto O'Rourke yelling, hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15s and your AK-47s. The double standards, he writes, by the Antigen left are breathtaking. And he points to Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro, he says, was at a Rose Garden ceremony with uh, Biden, talking about these uh, ghost guns. Never mind, writes Pratt, that Shapiro's office has been accused of illegally transferring a homemade gun to a television journalist preparing a story on the issue without conducting a background check. That would violate both state and federal law. The transfer made to facilitate an NBC News report on a local supplier of P-80 kits. With the anti-gun left, writes Pratt, we constantly see rules for thee, but not for me. The Biden administration openly admitted that he ordered this, quote, ghost gun regulation because he was having trouble getting gun control passed in Congress. That's lawless and unconstitutional behavior. The president is not a king who can issue decrees on a whim. Well, he certainly tries. I mean, we've seen this beyond the gun issue, right? We've seen this with the OSHA mask mandate, which was struck down. Seen this with the mask mandate on planes, which a federal judge has now struck down. The Biden administration in the you know little more than a year that it has been in effect, has continuously abused the power of the executive branch because Biden can't get his desired agenda passed through Congress. And so what do you do? Well, you try to put as much of it in place as you can via executive action. Now, thankfully, we do have things like the Administrative Procedures Act, which have been used to challenge a lot of these executive orders, and I suspect will be used to challenge the uh, final rule on, quote, ghost guns. Uh, when it takes effect, as well as the uh, uh, final rule on uh, frames and receivers uh, as well, and uh, uh, pistol stabilizing braces. I think all of those are going to be subject to legal challenges, and I think those legal challenges are likely to succeed because, again, what Joe Biden is trying to do is enact a law through regulation. But he also, don't forget, he wants to see Congress do this. He wants to see Congress ban, quote-unquote, ghost guns. He wants to see Congress ban modern sporting rifles and large-capacity magazines. He wants to see Congress repeal the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. He wants Congress to turn our right to keep and bear arms into a legal nullity. But Congress is not inclined to do so. At the same time, 
Democrats around the country are doing whatever they can to increase the pressure on Congress. And that would include Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner, who uh, last week announced the charges of illegal possession of firearms and a controlled substance. Yeah, illegal drugs and a gun that was illegally possessed. But somehow, Krasner didn't want to talk about how the illegal drugs were obtained. Yeah, for whatever reason. He wanted to focus on the illicitly obtained firearm, one that was built by the individual who was arrested. According to news reports, the, quote, individual is also suspected of manufacturing specific parts for firearms through the use of a 3D printer and of completing the construction of untraceable, quote, ghost guns through the online purchasing of parts, including slides and barrels. News reports added after agents with the Gun Violence Task Force received a tip about these activities, authorities arrested Daniel Whiteman on the morning of April 1st. 2022. Whiteman was in the process of printing a polymer receiver, which essentially houses a firearms operational mechanisms when authorities executed a search warrant at his Roxborough residence. Krasner stated, quote, this frightening case is a clear cut example of why we need our state legislature to modernize firearm safety laws that reflect the reality of 3D printing technology. Add in our communities demand that state legislatures in the thrall of the National Rifle Association wake up and start caring about public safety by passing common-sense gun regulation so that we can prevent the next Mr. Whiteman from producing and trafficking guns that jeopardize the lives of families and children. Well, there is a hell of a lot to unpack there, isn't there? All right, let, let's start with the fact, what, what exactly does uh, Larry Krasner want to do? What does he want the state legislature to do there in Pennsylvania? So you've got a guy who's a convicted felon. He purchased a 3D printer. Should we make that illegal? If you're a convicted felon, you can't purchase the 3D printer? Should we make it illegal to purchase a 3D printer for anybody? What about a CNC machine? Should we make it illegal to purchase a CNC machine? Should you have to be licensed to have a CNC machine in your home workshop? I'm sure Larry Kaiser will be like, yeah, absolutely we do. Yeah, more licensing, more laws, more regulations. But again, what's that really going to do? In this case, you've got a convicted felon who was caught without the need for any new gun control laws on the books. You know why he was caught? Because somebody in that guy's life said, hey, what this guy's doing is wrong. And I need to let somebody know about it. And so they called. And there was an investigation. And lo and behold, there were arrests. And maybe there's going to be a conviction. And maybe there'll be prison time. Although Larry Krasner prosecuting, who knows. But no new laws were necessary for this individual to be charged with very serious crimes. So what good would new laws do? And what would those new laws look like if, again, they're going to be narrowly tailored to address a specific problem of criminal access to firearms? Because if you just try to write a law that says broadly, uh, people should not be able to build their own guns, that's going to be challenged in court and it's likely going to be struck down. If you pass a law that says, well, uh, you know, uh, you, you shouldn't be able to have these 3D printers, that's going to be struck down. Again, there's only so much that you can do. As long as our Constitution, our Bill of Rights still has a modicum of respect in our criminal justice system, there's only so much that you can do to target violent criminals by enacting laws that apply across the board, including for law-abiding citizens. Those laws are always going to fail to reduce violent crime. But that gets us back to what Eric Pratt said. It's not about reducing violent crime. At the end of the day, it's not about reducing the number of homicide victims. It's not about reducing the number of carjacking victims. It's not about reducing the number of home invasions. 
It's about reducing the number of legal gun owners because that they still have that mindset of more guns equals more crime. And if we just had fewer legal gun owners, why then we wouldn't have any crime at all. Unfortunately, that's not how the real world works, is it? Again, we've already seen states that have incredibly restrictive gun control laws, like California, the most restrictive in the nation, has a violent crime rate that is roughly the same as the state of Texas, a constitutional carry state. If you want to reduce violent crime, which is what I think Americans really want, and I think that's what Americans are asking for right now. We're not asking for more gun laws. We're not asking for more restrictions on our right to keep in barrage. We're asking that our cities become as safe as they were three years ago. When violent crime had been trending down for 30 years straight. That's what we want. We want to go back to where we were just three years ago, trending in the right direction. What changed? The gun laws hadn't changed in the past three years. I mean, yeah, constitutional carry has expanded, but that doesn't change who can purchase a firearm. doesn't really even change who can carry a firearm. You still have to be a legal gun owner in order to carry. You just don't have to have a government-issued permission slip. The gun laws in this country have not led to the spike in crime that we're witnessing here. The closure of the court systems for months on end, releasing many offenders so that they didn't catch COVID behind bars, telling police departments not to prosecute low-level offenses, including open-air drug sales. All of these things, and by the way, the uh, uh, George Floyd-related riots, the pullback by police officers, the defunding of police departments, the officer shortfalls we're seeing in departments from coast to coast, all of those things have created an environment where the criminal feels emboldened right now. And honestly, the best thing and the, I won't say the easiest thing, but the simplest thing, simple to say, a little bit harder to do, but it can be done. The simplest way to reduce violent crime is to focus on the violent criminals. It's just that simple. Uh, I wrote about this at Bearing Arms this morning, talking about Jin Saki's comments. Non-fatal clearance rates, non-fatal shooting clearance rates in cities like Chicago, Durham, North Carolina, 10%. 10%. Nine out of ten non-fatal shootings do not result in an arrest. You want to reduce violent crime? Bring that clearance rate up to 50%, 60%, 70%. Start doing the uh, hard work of rebuilding the trust between police and communities. Which Again, it's not going to happen overnight, but it can be done. It has been done. Uh, increase, again, the number of prosecutors, number of public defenders, so that cases can actually go to trial. We've had cases be dismissed because there aren't enough public defenders to handle cases. Increase witness protection services so that people who are afraid to testify have some modicum of safety, that they don't have to fear retaliation if they try to put a violent criminal behind bars. Again, none of these involve new gun control laws. None of them are about controlling gun owners, which is why Democrats are largely uninterested in them. But as we get closer to the midterms, I think it's incumbent on all of us to try to separate the fact from fiction when it comes to public safety, violent crime, and our right to keep and bear arms. All right, let's turn our attention now to today's Armed Citizen story. Our good deed of the day 
And our recidivist report will start there. Cincinnati, Ohio, new details about a 16-year-old facing murder charges in three separate Cincinnati shootings. Mm-hmm. And once again, a 16-year-old already well-known to police. Criminal history started uh, when he was 15. Cited for obstruction and curfew violation in December of 2020. Okay, listen, that could just be normal teenage nonsense, right? Court records allege in April of 2021, so four years after this uh, 15-year-old's or 16-year-old's first arrest, records allege the teen was involved in a burglary. Okay. It's a little bit harder to explain away as just, uh, you know, youthful shenanigans. But he's also accused of assault, kidnapping, and abduction with a firearm. All last year. Documents say the victim was, quote, taken at gunpoint and forced to undress and dance. Yeah. And yet, the 16-year-old, still out on the streets, and has now been charged with three murders that took place over 17 days, from last September to mid-October. 18-year-old Avante Baker Beatty was killed on September 27th. 39-year-old Yerseli Sammy Sr. killed on October 12th. A day later, 16-year-old Javier Randolph was shot and killed. Prosecutors say that all of these shootings were caught on camera. Um, Dempsey Dejanet spoke with WLWT in Cincinnati. He says, to somebody that hasn't gone through this lifestyle and hasn't experienced what it was like, it blows their mind. But to somebody that grows up in this, that's all that they know. It's the norm to them. I disagree. I, I, I disagree. And I know that Dempsey Dejanet, he spent 28 years behind bars for an aggravated robbery in 1992. He says that uh, he wishes someone would have intervened for the teen murder suspect sooner. He says, I don't think our young people are evil. I just think they're misled. I think they're misunderstood. And I think they aren't being given a proper nourishment as far as education is concerned. You know, here's the thing. Most 16-year-olds, even most 16-year-olds who live in high-crime neighborhoods, will never be accused of murder, much less three murders in less than three weeks. So I, I, I cannot entirely buy into the idea that, well, this is just, you know, a failure of the system. Can the system be improved? Sure. Are the things that can be done to try to steer at-risk teens and at-risk youth away from a life of violent crime? Yeah, absolutely there are. And I'm fully in favor of supporting them and funding them. But having said that, when you're 16 years old, you know the difference between right and wrong. You know that taking an innocent human life is not just a, a, a crime in the statute books, but it is a moral atrocity. You should know these things. And if you didn't, it's not just a failure of the educational system. Again, we're talking about a, a failure of parenting. We're talking about a, a, a lack, not just of common sense, but a lack of moral standards. Something that, again, I don't think is addressed by another gun control law. Something that can't be addressed, frankly, by another gun control law. But something that, again, I don't think you can just pin on the system or society. Because the fact remains that in any given city across the country, a preponderance of violent crime is committed by a very small portion 
of the population. Uh, I think there was a study I cited for the National Institute of Justice uh, yesterday on bearing arms. 1% of violent crime, excuse me, 1% of the population responsible for 63% of violent crime. Now, more than 1% of the population lives in poverty. More than 1% of the population is growing up in very challenging circumstances. Whether that is, uh, again, just a, a, a lack of resources, whether it is an abusive household. Far more than 1% of us grow up in those circumstances. And yet, the vast majority of those individuals do not go on to become cold-blooded killers or violent criminals. So I don't think we can just pass it off and say, well, it's just the system or it's just society. At some point, individual accountability has to come into play. And in this case, the criminal justice system failed to hold this 16-year-old responsible sounds like for any of the crimes that he committed, even after he was convicted or pled guilty, he was allowed to continue. His behavior was allowed to escalate. And now, allegedly, because of the 16-year-old, three lives have been lost. Now, today's armed citizen story from New Orleans, Louisiana, where the uh, victim of a carjacking shot at one of the suspects accused of trying to uh, carjack them. This was uh, over the weekend uh, in the Bywater neighborhood. Police say that a man had just pulled into his driveway, was walking up to his front door, when two teenagers in a car backed down the street and stopped in front of him. One of them pointed a gun, demanded his keys, the victim gave the suspects the keys, by the way. Uh, but then when the teen pointed the gun at the uh, victim again, that's when the would-be victim pulled out his own lawfully carried firearm and fired shots. A suspect arrived at a uh, local hospital uh, driven in a car by another person who was with him at the time of the carjacking incident. Um, we've got uh, two people, I believe, who've been uh, arrested here and facing charges. The armed citizen, not expected to face any charges, but we'll bring any more details as they become available. Finally today, our good deed of the day, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing, a DEC officer in upstate New York who saved a man and his dog from a blazing car fire in Carmel, New York, over the weekend. Some scary images there. Officer Daniel Franz was on patrol back on uh, April the 7th uh, in the uh, town of Carmel. When he saw a vehicle had gone over the edge of an embankment, he could see that there was fire coming from underneath the vehicle. So he crawled into the damaged car through the passenger door, which allowed the dog that was inside to escape. Then he was able to pull the driver out. He had actually gotten just a few yards away when the vehicle exploded. Uh, according to the Department of Environmental Conservation, the driver transported to a local hospital. And uh, Daniel Franz continued his patrol that day. Hopefully at least had time for a coffee break, a little... Uh, Deep breathing exercises. I imagine the adrenaline was rushing, but again, in the right place, at the right time, willing able to do the right thing. Daniel Franz with the uh, DEC there in New York State, we thank you for your very good deed. And I thank you for tuning in to this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I really do appreciate it. Always enjoy our time together. Looking forward to doing it again tomorrow. Hey, also, don't forget, you want to spend a little more quality time together, we can do that. Wednesdays, 1.30 Eastern, we have our VIP Gold live chat. It's uh, Hot Air's Ed Morrissey and myself hanging out with our VIP Gold members. 
talking about whatever it is that you want to talk about. There's generally quite a bit of two-way discussion, but uh, it is limited only to your imagination. And I uh, would love to have you as a part of that event tomorrow as well. All you have to do, go to barryandarms.com slash subscribe. You can sign up to become a VIP gold member. You'll get VIP access not only to Barry and Arms, but to all of the Town Hall Media family of websites from Hot Air, Red State, Town Hall, obviously, uh, PJ Media, and more. Just go to, again to barryandarms.com slash subscribe. We thank you for your support. I will see you back here tomorrow with another edition of Barry and Arms Cam and Company as well as the VIP Gold Live Chat. And until then, be well, be safe, be free. Be free.